We have uh, with us a guest speaker, Juan Kwok, uh, who is a pastor at uh, Maranatha Grace Church just outside of New York City in New Jersey. And yeah, we can give him a round of applause. That works. And uh, you guys are from Jersey. We got some Jersey. I see why you want to take him out to lunch. The Jersey connection. All right. Um, Juan is a, uh, I, I met Juan uh, a couple years ago through uh, some pastor connections that we have. And uh, Juan, I actually was supposed to nominate Juan to be the vice president for the pastor's conference at the Southern Baptist Convention, and I never got to nominate you. So I would like to nominate Juan Kwok to be the, Juan is the pastor at Maranatha Grace Church. His church has exploded and doing really well, and he should be the vice president for the pastor's conference. That's what I was going to say. Um, but he, uh, he did end up being the vice president for the pastor's conference at the Southern Baptist Convention, which makes like nobody here is excited about that. You're just going to have to deal with that, all right? They just don't care. <laughs> but I do. All right. One is uh, he is a pastor. Um, he's in transition. I don't know if you want to say anything about that. You don't have to. But he's in transition. He's taking a role uh, helping to plant churches and, and revitalize churches in New York City and Brooklyn and just in Jersey a little bit as well uh, with the North American Mission Board. And so he's transitioning out of his uh, current role as senior pastor. And so be praying for Juan in that. He's married. He's got four children. And uh, brother, great to have you here. Come on up and give us the word. Thank you. Joel, can you, am I on? It's off mute. Can you hear me? We're good? Okay. Thank you, brother, for the invite. Uh, thank you, church, for the warm welcome. Yesterday was really, as Brian Dave would, would say, very, really dope. It was just a great conference. <laughs> I can't say that with the, 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 the way that he says that, uh, but um, I was met with warmth, and uh, again today, um, just seeing the body of Christ together, worshiping, singing uh, songs of praise, lifting up prayers supplications. Uh, this, I feel like I'm at home, uh, and that shouldn't be a surprise to me, so thank you. Thank you to the Kurtz family for the, the warm hospitality. Had better wings in Buffalo than, <laughs> better wings than in Buffalo uh, just, just yesterday for dinner. So, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, my name's Juan, and uh, I am a pastor, and I bring greetings from uh, the church that we planted about 10 years ago. I think we're, we're about the same, same age as the Garden Baltimore, and that, that's pretty cool. Um, and I'm really glad to be able to just come and preach in my, my skin. Uh, I usually preach with a, a tie, uh, not a jacket, just a shirt and tie, and uh, uh, back in my home church, uh, because from Monday to Saturday, I'm usually a slob. I'm a shorts and a t-shirt guy. I would love one of those Grace Alone t-shirts, by the way. Anyway, um, so I, I make up for it. I compensate on Sundays by wearing a tie, but uh, when Joel said he preaches in a t-shirt, uh, I said, yes, you know, I can... <laughs> Um, so thank you. And uh, I, I want to start off by giving you some quick application from Hebrews 13. Uh, I don't know if you know, but October is Pastor Appreciation Month. Did you guys know that? No. no. All right. Well, there you go. Application point. Appreciate 
not only your pastors, and not only in October, but appreciate the men uh, and the leaders who watch over your souls. Um, Pastor Eric, Pastor Montrell, Pastor Joel, uh, they're going to be held accountable for your souls. And uh, the Bible says in Hebrew 13, 17, uh, make it a joy for them. Don't make them groan through <laughs> shepherding you. And that's one of the things I, I really saw in, in your pastor, Joel, one of your pastors, uh, a few years back when I came on a, a One Hope, just kind of like uh, vision tour, whatever you want to call it. We were in the streets, he was in the car, or we were walking around, he was just like, hey, hey, where, where were you this past Sunday, you know? And I saw that again yesterday and today. And uh, as a fellow shepherd, that brings joy, and that brings encouragement and inspiration to me. And that's why I love you, brother, and that's why I love uh, what he's doing here, what you all are doing here as well. So praise God and uh, appreciate and honor your, your pastors. Um, amen? All right. Well, I want to get into the Word now, and I want to read uh, just a couple short passages from Genesis 2 and 3. It's not the entire chapter, so if you guys have your digital Bibles, your hard copies, um, if you could just follow along. Open up to Genesis 2, Genesis 3. They might be like side by side, so just stick your finger in there. First passage, I want to read Genesis 2.25, and then 3, 7 through 10, and 21. I'll give you a moment. Genesis 2.25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 3.7-10 says, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Lastly, Genesis 3.21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. I have three points, uh, three observations that I hope will deepen our understanding of this text of the Word of God and of God's heart for us, and I pray that it will uh, deepen your love, our love for Him, and, and help us in our obedience to God. These are the three points, how different things were, how disgraceful things are, and how delightful things will be. I'm a Baptist preacher, okay? So let's pray. Let's pray as we continue in our worship. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your precious and holy word. We thank you, Lord, for the, the means of grace that we have here in this body of Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for being our true and chief shepherd. And Father, as the sheep have gathered, Lord, I don't know where they've been. I don't know what's on their hearts and minds. I have some clue, but you know precisely what they need to hear. You know precisely the folks who need to be rebuked, who need to be encouraged, who need to be inspired, who need to be reminded of the grace in their lives and assured of it in their lives. So I pray that you would do the work that only you can do. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts gathered here today be pleasing and acceptable to you. Oh Lord, our unshakable, immovable rock and our great Redeemer, Amen. 
point one, how different things were. We read a passage in 2.25 that speaks of the man and his wife being naked and not ashamed. This account, which I'm sure many of you are familiar with in Genesis 1 and 2, this creation account, is an epic, epic story. And in this story, which we're not going to read today, but I encourage you to read after today's gathering, is, is a blueprint for humanity. It's a history. It's a blueprint. And what we read about is, is a people, and we read about a purpose, and we read about a place. And I don't know about you, but when you hear of epic stories, maybe your mind thinks of or wanders to, I don't know, the, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you know, the, the epic stories that, that we, we see in, in, in that movie series. Or maybe some of you have read the Lord of the Rings trilogy or, or Harry Potter or whatever you might, your mind may go to. This is the most epic of epic stories. Because in this story, we not only have the origins and the history of humanity, we have the story of God and the story of God's plans laid out for us to take in. And in the beginning, God speaks the heavens and the earth into creation out of nothing. The Latin is ex nihilo. And as he does this, what do we, what do we hear? What's the resounding kind of we hear that God sees that it was good, right? You hear God saw that it was good. It's a repeated phrase throughout Genesis 1. And then at the climax of this creation, the Scriptures reveal to us that God formed humanity. Genesis 2.7, it says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. I don't know if you've ever really dwelled on that, but it's, it's, a, it's a, an incredible an incredible passage, an incredible thought and, um, th- th- that God formed, right? The Hebrew word, tsar, it conveys this picture of a potter, a master potter fashioning clay into a particular shape. How was mankind fashioned? We discover that in Genesis 1.27 where it says, God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him. God says it twice, and that's, that's important to notice in the text. Male and female, he created them. So this master potter, with a capital P, fashioned, he formed humankind in his own image. And then what does the text say that he does in this process? He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Not, only, not merely physical life, but mental, intellectual life, emotional life, relational life, and and spiritual life as well. And the man became a living creature. That's 2-7-B. What does it mean to be created in the image of God, in the likeness of God? I can go on and on about this, but I'm not going to, right? Maybe have a Sunday school class on this, perhaps. But at the core of it, it essentially means that, that we, as God's created humanity, we bear resemblance to God in some ways. Because God has shared some of his attributes with us, we bear his image. And guess what? God created this humanity, this people, and he gave them a purpose. 
And that purpose was to reflect God's image, to reflect his character, to reflect his beauty, to reflect his, his brilliance. We're called to rep God, right? Some of you, I'm, I'm not, my kids speak some slang and some, you know, colloquial language that I'm just like clueless about, but I can get rep, right? You guys know what it means to rep something, right? You rep your team, right? You rep you know, whatever, by wearing, you know, uh, the, the cap or the, or the sweatshirt or the t-shirt. We're called to rep God and His glory to the world, to the world. That's our purpose. That's why we were fashioned and formed and designed and created to do. He makes this clear to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1.28. God blessed them. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds and the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Adam and Eve, garden church, as you do this, you represent and you reflect me. Now, what about the place? A people, a purpose, the place? Genesis 2.8 clues us in on that very clearly. And the Lord God planted a garden right? Very appropriately named, your church. In Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So, we didn't read one and two, Genesis, but if you read the entire creation account, you would get this incredible, complete, panoramic view of this garden known as Eden. And, and guess what? Eden was not a shantytown. It was not a slum. It was paradise. I'm not very familiar with the Baltimore area, but I'm sure there's some areas around here that are just ritzy. There's some parts that are really just, I mean, you know, the upper crusty. I mean, paradise, Eden, made these places look like shantytowns. And what does God do? The writer of Genesis, Moses, says, God beheld all that he had made, and he didn't declare it just good this time. He says it was very, very good. And God saw everything that he had made, Genesis 1.31, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. It was the sixth day. What is God doing here? Have you guys ever finished a project or cooked a fantastic meal or done something, you know, played a, a, a musical piece, Right? And you step back after you did such a thing, and you're just like, wow, right? <laughs> you know, that, that, was, that was pretty sweet. Uh, ashamedly, I've done that too often. I don't know why, because I haven't done many things well in my life. But have you ever done that? That is precisely what God is doing. That was really good. That was really good. And he says so himself. And getting back to the the, the main point of point one, how different things were, the man and his wife were both naked and they weren't ashamed. How different things were. I don't know you guys, obviously, many of you, so I'm not quite sure what your perspectives, what your attitude is on nakedness and nudity. I can, you know, I have my guesses, bearing the body, but um, I think nowadays uh, when you look at, um, you know, 
the pop stars, Hollywood, right? When you see them on the red carpet, be it the Grammys or the Emmys or the gold, whatever that, you know, the award ceremony is, it's not what they wear that gets noticed, but it's, it's what they're not wearing that gets noticed, right? Skin is in, and it's been in for a while. And the more that it's exposed, um, the better. And there's a beauty to the body, but there's also a beauty to modesty, right? And the Bible talks about, Jeremiah talks about even back in the day, the prophet talks about how the people have lost the ability to blush appropriately. And I think that's what we see nowadays, right? Uh, when I was a kid, <laughs> this is a funny story that I got to share, maybe around eight years old, uh, all my cousins were older because my mom was the youngest of like seven brothers and sisters. My older cousin, Jung, came up to me and he was like, Juan, let me tell you a joke. He said, if you were caught in a burning house or a burning building and you were taking a shower uh, and you had to rush out as fast as possible to save your life and there was no towel, there were no clothings, if you ran out, ran out into the public, what part of your body would you hide? And so I was thinking, oh, duh, I mean, you know, like, I'd, I'd do one of those things, right? He's like, no, you dummy, you should hide your face. And I didn't get it then, because I was eight years old, but I got it many years later. Why would you hide your face? To hide yourself from the shame, the disgrace. Getting back to the perspectives and attitudes on nakedness, right? I would venture to say that most of you would agree with me that there is deep embarrassment and shame in nakedness. Why? Because you're exposed. It's, you're, you're in a state of vulnerability before others. But what did we read in the text? Adam and Eve were naked, and they felt no apparent shame. This is extremely noteworthy, because what we're seeing and how different things were is not just two people frolicking in the buff, husband and wife doing their appropriate husband and wife things, unencumbered by clothing. No, this is not what we see merely. They were naked before each other. They were naked before creation. They were naked before God in this paradise. There was full disclosure, full openness, and yet there's this childlike innocence that they're experiencing in that existence. Why were things so different? Because there was no sin. And if there's no sin, there's no skeletons in the closet. There's no rap sheet. There's no prior, previous addictions to whatever it might have been. There's no guilt, there's no shame, there's no disgrace. There was no reason for shame because there was no Sin. There was no insecurity. There was no fear. Now hold on to that thought. Hold on to that thought as we move to point number two. How different things were, how disgraceful things are. As we read in our texts, things would change drastically, massively. In Eden, in that place, with the people, Adam and Eve, who had a purpose, they would go from this state of blissful, naked and unashamed existence and relationship with one another and with their creator God to being naked, 
ashamed and even fearful. Let me read Genesis 3-7 once again. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. What, what, what happened here? Why are they covering up? The long story, super short, is they had gone against God's clear instruction not to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And again, theologically, I can't get into it because we could be here for hours, right? But God established a covenant with them. Pastor Eric talked about it this morning, and I'm glad he stole my thunder because we should be stealing that kind of thunder and repeating that kind of thunder all the time. He referenced God's covenant of grace during the Sunday school class, and he should have been here. And, And even at this time, God established a covenant, but it was a covenant of works, a covenant that, 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 that described stipulations and parameters for Adam and Eve, his people, to live within that would lead to blessing, that would lead to flourishing, that would lead to them repping him rightly as his ambassadors, as his regents, as his people. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, if you're like me, I can be very skeptical, very cynical about things, about authority. If you're like me, some of you might be thinking, why did God put a restriction? I can give you the short answer and just say, because he's God, (laughs) because he's all-wise and all-knowing and sovereign, because he's the creator, because he's the author of our lives and our salvation. But sometimes that just ain't good enough for us, right? And you know what? Thinking critically, thinking deeply about these kinds of things is not a bad thing. Because oftentimes these things will shore up and strengthen your faith and your assurance in the God who is faithful. But some of you might be thinking, on just what is the big deal? Why did he have to put a restriction? And just because they ate of that fruit, what is the big deal? They chomped on some really good-looking, fresh fruit. And those of you who are skeptical and cynical, you might be thinking, I knew it. This just confirms my, 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 my hunch that, that God is a Grinch, right? God is, 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 is like that Dr. Seuss character who stole Christmas away. God is the cosmic, he, he's the Grinch on a cosmic level. He's the cosmic killjoy. Maybe that's what you think. You know what's really crazy is in our sinfulness, in our fallenness and depravity, We're so fickle, sometimes we think of God as our cosmic Grinch, sometimes we think of him as our cosmic Santa Claus. Depending on how we feel on any given day, it's like, God, I want this, put the coins in, and you should be getting what you want, or we think that he just withholds everything from us. This was a problem. This is a problem for us, and it certainly was a problem for Adam and Eve their view of God. They thought, why is God withholding this from us? And for us, we think, oh, God, I just want 
my insurance policy out of hell. Give me that pass, and I want nothing more from you. This is not the God of the Bible. God does not want you to be miserable for his glory. (laughs) That's not the God that we read about, and we need to, to understand this deeply because the Bible throughout Genesis to Revelation speaks to us of God's heart. John 10.10, the second portion says, I came that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly. Amen. The psalmist pronounces in Psalm 16.11, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And getting back to Adam and Eve, let's remember created out of the dust of the earth, given life by their creator, God. Created in his image, their people, given this awesome purpose to rep him, placed in this incredible paradise. And yet, they rebel. And things become disgraceful. Disgraceful. Despite having God, despite having one another. You know, um, I don't know if you thought about this, but Adam, after he was created, he had the greatest helper, right? The Spirit of God. And yet God, in his wisdom, still creates for him a suitable helper. Jonathan Edwards, he calls this the humility of creation, the humility of God in creation. So he gets this beautiful smoking hot wife, inside and out. She gets this stud of a man who loves her and cares for her. They're living out this beautiful existence in paradise, but then the scriptures describe to us the fall. And we see the difference in that moment before and after. And what the scriptures describe to us is this, is this gaining of, right, they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They gain knowledge. Their eyes are opened up. And you know, in most contexts, that's a good thing, right? It's a sad thing for us to live in ignorance. It's a sad thing for us to not be curious, right, and, and want to learn. Why? Because we were created in God's image. And so we have these minds to expand and to be enriched So it's a good thing in most contexts, in most situations, for us to gain knowledge. But this knowledge wasn't a knowledge that was appropriate for them. This knowledge was deeper than just a a gaining of intellectual insight. This was an experience of moral knowledge, good and evil, but it was an experience that they shouldn't have had, according to the wisdom of God. Adam and Eve, they didn't experience this enlightening of their minds. They weren't more in the know and more grown up and more mature post partaking of the fruit. I do ministry in Metro New York City, and I don't know if you've experienced this, but New Yorkers can be really proud and arrogant, right? (laughs) Montreal knows what I'm talking about, especially about their sports teams, right? They think they're the most sophisticated fans, and you hear it. You hear about it in their talk shows, and it, it, it rubs me the wrong way because, all right, I'm from New Jersey, right, and we have some problems as Jerseyans being a self-deprecating state, 
um, and people. But people from places like New York City think they're all cosmopolitan, think they need to know everything about everything. But guess what? It's not always good to be in the know. And it's not good to be in the know when it's coming out of your wisdom that flows out of your fallenness and your pride and your corrupted sense of esteem. When you think that you know best, that's not the best knowledge to have. Case in point, the Bible speaks to us in the Song of Solomon. The writer is is addressing not only the daughters of Jerusalem, but the people of Jerusalem, the people of God. And this is what he says. The ESV, I'll read two versions. The ESV reads, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says this, Young women of Jerusalem, so straightforward, I charge you by the gazelles and the wild does of the field, do not stir up or awaken love until the appropriate time. So sometimes there's good knowledge, but it's knowledge you shouldn't have until you're ready, until you're mature enough to deal with that knowledge. The people, Adam and Eve of God, could not deal with this knowledge because this knowledge was not insight. It was not an enlightenment. It was the darkening of their minds and their hearts. It was a corruption of their souls. And we see what happened after they partook of this fruit and broke this covenant. In Genesis 3, 8 through 10, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And what did they do? They hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. And the Lord asks a question, which is really rhetorical, but the purpose is for them to see what's going on in their hearts. He says, where are you? And he said, Adam did, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. You see, it's not maturity because if true maturity is what they're experiencing, they're gonna run to God and say, God, God, we we know we can come to you. We know we we can find wisdom and comfort and love from you, but that's not what's happening here. What we see, what we read about, is how disgraceful things became, how disgraceful things are. And you guys know the story, perhaps. They're given the boot out of Eden, right? But you know what? This paradise of Eden wasn't merely a place. And it's not just a book written by Milton, okay? (laughs) Paradise lost. It was a state of being. And they lost it in their sin. They were now like God, but they couldn't handle this knowledge. And this account is really tragic and sad because it reveals to us people who, instead of turning to the dispenser of ultimate wisdom and knowledge, their creator and their father, they feel fear and shame. 
as they experience disgrace in their hearts, so they hide from God. And all the harmony and the peace and the love and the trust and the security and the identity that was founded in this relationship with God became undone as they were disgraced. I looked up disgrace in dictionary.com just to get a clearer, more precise understanding of the word, right? I mean, it's the opposite dis of grace, right? So you get a pretty good idea there. But it means to experience a loss of respect. They lost respect for God. They lost respect for one another. They lost respect of themselves, right? That's why you lose self-respect and self-esteem because of the fall. And what we see happening here is really, really, I think, the saddest thing in the entire Bible. You know, I, I used to think that John 11.35 was the saddest passage in the Bible. Anyone know what John 11.35 reads? Jesus wept. That, that was, at one point in my life, the saddest passage in the Bible. And then at some point, it became John 19.30. Anyone know what John 19.30 speaks of? crucifixion scene. Jesus had received the sour wine. He said, it is finished, and he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. But Genesis 3, 8 through 10 has become the saddest passage in the Bible for me, especially as I've become a father to, um, to five kids. Uh, my second daughter is with the Lord. Um, the Lord has been so gracious to us to be able to steward and shepherd these souls that, that he's blessed us with. Um, for those of you who are parents, you know that parenting is, um, it can be exhilarating to the nth degree, and yet so trying and so impossible at times. And uh, what we do at home is we just try to teach them how to be grateful, <laughs> respect authority, um, be humble, and know the Lord. But um, the reason why this passage is the, is the saddest passage in the Bible for me um, as a father now was uh, because um, I want my kids to be able to come to me and talk with me. You should want that for your kids. You don't want your kids to hide from you when you say, Eden, come here. Come to mom come to dad. You don't want them to feel disgrace or shame that they can't come to you and just open up and pour out their hearts to you. Well, my daughter, my oldest, who I just sent off to college, believe it or not, when she was three, maybe some of you dads have done this, I used to ask her, Madeline, who are you going to marry when you get older? She was three years old. And when she was three, she used to tell me, Daddy, I'm not going to get married because you're my husband. You're my husband, Daddy. I want to marry you. <laughs> and then at six, I remember asking her that same question, and she would tell me, Daddy, I'm not getting married because it's gross. <laughs> and I was like, yes. Yeah. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> when she turned nine, I remember asking her the same question, and she would tell me, Daddy, I'm going to marry the guy you approve of. 
the guy that you approve of. And I said, hey, this is real good, this is real good. Now that she's 18, I'm afraid to ask her that question. <laughs> but my hopes and my prayers are that she will trust me to the extent that when she starts having that interest in that boy, that man, that instead of hiding and running from me when I ask her about it, that she'll come straight to me and say, Daddy, I have questions. Daddy, teach me about the boy that you want for me, that the Lord wants for me. That's why this passage is so sad, because the people of God, God's children, hid when the Lord called out for them. How sad it is when our children cannot and do not trust us And instead of coming to the place where they can share, again, their deepest and their darkest fears and struggles and sorrows, they hide. This is why this is so disgraceful. And this is how different things were then from how things were when it all began. That leads us to point number three, how delightful things will be. Genesis 3.21 reads, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins, and he clothed them. That last passage, that last point, this is the sign of hope. In that Sunday school class, I heard words like typology. I think I heard shadow, beautiful stuff, awesome theology, right? Live it out, doxology, daily life. This is the sign of hope. This is the glimpse of the gospel that God gives to us already in Genesis 3. And he didn't just give it to us, he gave it to them as well. When you read through Genesis 1, 2, 3, you get a biblical theology. You get a biblical theology of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. You read of God's story, again, not just of the beginnings, but of his salvation, history, wrapped up in those three chapters, because we're going to hear about later in the Word of God, uh, and it's foreshadowed again and again throughout the Old Testament, of how in Christ Jesus, God brings a covering, how God brings cleansing, how God brings atonement for this fall. We read about a God who forgives us of our sin faithfully, fully, with finality that assures us, like your pastor taught us yesterday, of this future grace that, 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 that will keep us till the end. But guess what? Until that day, this side of heaven, we will deal with yeah. sin, with the flesh. We will deal with the consequences. We will feel the after effects of this sin that, Bi- that the Bible describes of how women will, 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 uh, will, give, uh, will experience uh, pain, tremendous pain in childbearing, how there will be a relational conflict between the man and his wife, how it will take work and hard, hard work for us to, 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 to enjoy the fruit of our labors the cultivation of, of the work that we're supposed to be engaged in as we rep God. But it's not our labors, it's not our work, it's not our righteousness, it's not our knowledge. It is the work of God that will make things delightful once again. It's the work of Jesus Christ through which 
all of, all of creation that was cursed, how things would be restored and made new. And it's not some gentrification project that we're talking about here in this restoration that's going to benefit some and not all of humanity. This is a true restoration. This is a physical restoration as well as spiritual. This is the work of God. This is the gospel and the effects of the gospel. The curse has been undone by Jesus Christ. We still feel the effects, right? We're still living in the here and now, but on that day, all will be made new and restored. And so we see more than just a glimmer of hope. We see the proto-angelion right here when we, when we read of how God covers Adam and Eve, right? How he clothes them. It's pointing to the Jesus who would come thousands of years later, generations later, the Son of God, the true. He wasn't just the second Adam. He was the true and better Adam that we sing about, that we read about. And what would this Jesus do? This Jesus would go upon a device which was made of his creation, the tree. He would go upon the tree and he would be cursed to undo the curse that was upon us for breaking the covenant of God. And guess what? How would he be on that cross. I know in a lot of renditions and paintings and pictures, you see a very kind of strategically placed loincloth, right? (laughs) That's not how it went down. He was stripped bare. He was naked upon that cross. And the Bible says in Hebrews, he did it for the joy of our salvation and the joy of his Father and the glory of God. And he despised the shame that we deserve to feel and experience for all eternity so that we could experience the grace of God. He took our shame and our disgrace and our nakedness, all our insecurity and our fears and our guilt, and he took it to the tree so that we could have eternal life and be restored to the Father. Fear not, Isaiah writes to us in 54.4, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded. Don't be confused, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. This is the promise of the gospel. So people of God, if you are new to this gospel thing, if you are coming off the streets for the first time into Garden Church, are you hiding? Are you taking refuge in the things that will not save you, that will not protect you, where you will not find true purpose and identity? I plead with you, find your true protection and cover and grace in the God that I've been speaking of this entire time, that we've been singing of and praying to. Come to the Lord Jesus today. Come to the man who came to seek and to save the lost and disgraced. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you, Lord, for giving us the gospel. Lord, I thank you for teaching us from Genesis to Revelation that it's all about Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for this epic narrative that we see summed up in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Father, I pray for your people here at the garden. I pray, Lord, that they will be encouraged in their faith. I pray that, I pray that they'll be encouraged as they live out this life on mission in this community to point others, to point themselves, to each other, to Christ Jesus, who took our shame, who took our disgrace, so that we might experience eternal life, restored, full peace, shalom with God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. As we continue to worship you, Lord, may you receive all glory, honor, and praise that's due your holy name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.